Okay, so we are doing Shmobet. It is Perak Dalit. And what we're seeing is a progression of the end of the dynasty of the house of Shaul. At the end of Shaul Aleph, um, Shaul dies, and his three sons, Yonatan, Avinadab, Malki Shaul die, and Haragaboa in the Jezreel Valley fighting the Philistines, fighting, fighting. And we see that as, as the first few chapters of Shmuel Bet go on, we see that there that Avner has taken the fourth son of Shaul, who seems to be a weak figure, and put him up as a king over Benjamin. And we saw at the end of one second, let's screen share. Hi Hannah. Okay. Um yeah. Okay. At the end of the um the story of the death of Shaul, we see that there is some kind of balagan, right? The men of Israel who are on the other side of the valley from the Jezreel Valley, on the other side of Jordan, they see that the Jews have lost, that there is a great defeat on the uh, Jewish side against the Philistines, and they leave their cities and they flee, and the Plishtim come and take those cities. So a lot of strange things are happening. Now, if we take a look here, I just want to show you this map. Okay, I'm a big believer in maps. So here we are. What Amir has done is he's divided the kingdom for the first time. We haven't had uh, actually a kingdom for very long, but after the death of Shaul, David is asked to be king in Hebron. This is, you see this line here. Okay, this line represents the uh, border of the... It's election day in Israel. A lot of noise and Balagan outside. Okay, so I closed the window. So you have here this line that shows you the territory of the tribe of Yehuda. And David is king here in Hebron. And the, David is king in Hebron for seven years. In the meantime, Ishbosheth takes, I'm sorry, Abner takes Ishbosheth and makes him king here in Mahanaim, which is, you see, this is the Jordan Valley. A river, right, from the river of the Jordan on the east bank, and he takes him over here, Machanaim, in order to get away from the Philistines, and to get away from David, and to give Abner uh, a chance to grow his kingdom. Then we saw that he slowly, with the help of Abner, and Abner is his strong man, Abner is the one who's running the show. Abner who is his uncle? Um, wait, Amir is not his uncle. Amir is Shaul's first cousin. His first cousin once removed, but he's a strong man, and he takes over all this area. And eventually, uh, Ishbosheth has a kingdom of eleven tribes, as opposed to Yehuda. But starting in chapter two, we saw that there's a conflict, and there's this sort of war that begins. Uh, at the pool in Gibbon, which is here, which is border. And Abner's men come to Gibbon, and David's men come as well. That's headed by Yoab. And we see that there's a conflict. At that time, 360 people of the men of Abner die, and 20 people die on the side of David's men, including Asael. Abner kills Yoab's brother, Asael. And after that, in chapter three, which we did last time, we saw that there was a falling out between Avner and Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, who should have known better, like Ishbosheth doesn't seem, you know, he, he just doesn't seem to be a, a strong character, not very wise character. And he accuses Avner of sleeping with Shoal's concubine, Ritzpah Bataya. Now, that's basically um, 
a rebellion because there is a a law that only a king can marry a king's widow. Therefore, if Avner is together with Ritzpah, that is a strike against Ishbosheth. However, Ishbosheth is foolish to accuse Avner because Avner is the one who gives him koach. And Avner says, how dare you talk to Avner doesn't deny it. We never know if Avner actually did this or didn't do this. But Avner says, I'm going to go to David now. I'm done with you. Now, it's not clear if Ishbosheth believes him and is afraid of this, but Avner means it. He goes all the way, right, to Hebron and says, David, I want to make everybody. He starts gathering everybody together to support David. And interestingly enough, um, David says, I will make a deal with you only when you bring me Michal. He's my wife. We talked about the story of Michal last time. Now, we have to understand that there's a, there's a difference here in the way David is operating. It's important to understand this. What happens many times, this is not a Jewish thing. I mean, it's definitely not a Jewish thing. It's not supposed to be a Jewish thing. One king takes over from another king and wipes out the whole king's family. In other words, in order to prevent the first dynasty from, you know, coming back to uh, take over, they just kill everybody. So that's one style. Now, David is, of course, a very righteous person, and David doesn't want to kill out Shoal's family. That's not the way he operates. He didn't want to kill Shoal when Shoal was in his hands, even though Shoal was trying to kill him. So this is not going to be the way he operates. So in David's mind, I think we have to see the insistence on having Michal as his thought that I, because I'm married to Shaul's daughter, we can have children together. And that way we will unify these two tribes and we will bring together to one kingdom. This is kind of the way that David is thinking, but it's not, it isn't actually uh, meant to be. What happens actually is that Avner wants to make a deal with him, sends him Michal, and then on his way out of this meeting with David, he's killed by Yoav, who is doing a revenge killing for his killing of his brother Asael back in the previous chapter. So now we have just a bloodbath. It's just a bloodbath, like everybody's getting killed, and the style of killing seems to be similar. They they hit at Hachomesh, and the Homer seems to be the fifth rib is how the the Chazal uh, understand. This seems to be a place where many many internal organs are situated, <coughs> so that a blow there is fatal. So now Abner is dead, and that's how we open up our story. Okay, we take a look at the, the general outline of this parak, parak Dalit. You see it's a very short parak. However, it is an action-packed parak, short but action-packed. And we see here a few things. There's a few things that happen. First, we see the reaction to the murder of Avner. And then we see a, a side about Yehonatan's son, Mephibosheth. And then we see the actual um, action that's taken against Ishbosheth, and then we see David's reaction to it. So, in order to understand this whole situation, let, let's think about it this way. You're an average person, and you're listening to the news, and the news is, right, Avner wants to make peace, and Yoav kills him, right? Who is at fault? Shaul and Yonatan are killed by the Pushtim. Who is at fault? It's very simple for a person who doesn't know what's going on to say, David caused the death of Shaul and Yonatan by giving them over to the Philistines. <clears throat> so Shaul makes a great um, lament, a eulogy for them. He talks about how have the mighty fallen. His tremendous sorrow at the loss of his best friend, Yonatan, and of his father-in-law, comes through. You see that David wants everyone to understand he's not happy about this. 
Okay, then, right, we find out that Avner gets killed by Yoav, and again, David is in a bad position. How does that look? Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the, the house of Shaul's uh, army, and David makes an agreement with him and then has him killed on his way out. This looks bad. The optics are bad. What, what are you doing here? Are you making a deal and then going behind his back? And so David wants it very clear. I didn't kill Avner. And I and and then he makes a whole lament for Avner. Avner should not have died like a like a Russia. Avner was a great person. No one understands this. And he's very, very sad. He fasts. He follows the beer of at the funeral of Avner. And it's interesting because a king is not supposed to do that. But he makes an exception. He wants everyone to know him very sad. He fasts till evening. And everyone says that at the end of Paragimel, just to show you here. At the end of Paragimel, it says, Kola Amhikiru by name. Everyone saw David's sorrow. Everyone saw that David was upset. And they said, right? Everything he's doing is right. They understood that David did not want to kill Abner Ben-Ner. So David is really fighting a battle in a certain sense because he has to prove to people that these political uh, assassinations are not what he wants. They're definitely not what he wants. So he's saying, you know, I, this is not my idea. I am very sad. And the truth is, even when he's private with these people, I can go back there a second just to show you, even when he's not together, right, in the in public, he doesn't punish Yoav. And there's two reasons for this. Number one, Yoav has mitigating circumstances because Yoav is avenging his brother's death. It, it was politically, you know, expedient for Yoav because if Avner comes on the scene, Avner might replace him as chief general, you know, Ramatkal. But besides that, it's his brother. He killed his brother. So David doesn't punish Yoav. And here it says, to he says to his servants, don't you understand? A great man fell today. This is the end of Paragimel. But I am young. I'm just recently anointed. The sons of Truya are too much for me. They're too hard for me. God should, you know, punish the evildoers for doing evil. And later we find out, much later, at the beginning of Malachim, that one of the things David tells his son Shlomo to do before he dies is punish Yoav. And that sounds really kind of vindictive, but you have to understand that David is actually helping Yoav, because if Yoav gets punished in this world, he's not going to get a terrible punishment in the next world, and Yoav does some bad stuff. But in the meantime, just getting into the understanding of what's happening here, we have to understand that David is in a terrible position. Every one of these assassinations looks really bad for him, and it's just going to get worse. And he has to prove to people, I didn't want it to be this way. This is not my idea. Okay, so that's where David is holding. Now we go back to Ishbosheth. We'll look at this edition. I have to tell you that this is a very weird parent, short but weird. A lot of strange questions, and what I'll try to do is make some sense for you out of it. Pasigalim. Vayishma ben Shaul ki meitz Avner bechevron, vayipuya da v'chayisrael v'chalim. Now, notice that Ishboshet is not called by his name. He's called ben Shaul. We pointed this out in Perak Gimel. In Perak Gimel, go back to Perak Gimel. Right? Shaul has his pilegish v'tzva v'tzaya, vayomer al Avner. We know that it's Ishbosheth because he says, My father's concubine, but he doesn't have a name there. It's just my Yomer. And Matuda says, Yeah, well, we know who it is, but it, his name isn't mentioned. And then Abner gets angry at him. And then at the end, it says, Right, um, persecute here. Uh, he couldn't answer it. He, again, we have three times in the beginning of Paragdalet when Ishboshet isn't given a name. He's just him. Here he's the son of Shaul. So the, the question is, what's that all about? 
The most likely explanation is that this is a put down. You notice that when David gets angry, I'm uh, sorry, when Shoal gets angry at David, he calls him Ben Yishai. Ben Yishai. It's not considered a, uh, a nice way of speaking to someone. So there's two things. It's highlighting Ishbosheth's weakness. He's impotent. He's, he's got no power if, without Avner. And it's also telling us that the only thing he has going for him is that he's the son of Shaul. As an individual, he's nothing. He never went to war. He's not a general. He's not a commander. He's not a leader. And he's not so wise. So when he hears that Amner died, his hands became even weaker. And Israel, this means Israel, his kingdom, the, the, the kingdom of the house of Shaul, the, they're nivhalu, right? They they they're terrified. They're, they don't they don't know what to do now. They're like, it's it's, it's what's happening now. It, there's going to be a tremendous shakeup here, and and Ishbosheth knows there's nobody who can prop him up anymore. And it's interesting because did he not realize that Avner was going against him, or perhaps he thought that when Avner makes a deal with David. He's going to come out alive, at least at the end of the story, and uh, we'll have a unification of some kind. So the fact that Amner is dead is just bad news all around. Just bad news all around. What do we do with this? Now, you have to understand that um, in terms of David's leadership, we are now going step by step, taking out his opposition. It's not something he does. It's not something he wants, but that's what's happening. That's coming from a Kaddish Baruch Okay, Pasuk The implication here is Hayu Liben Shaul. Again, we don't give this man his name. There were two men who were heads of the troops of, of Ishbosheth. Now we have the introduction of our villains, Rechav and Bana, the sons of Rimon of Beirut. And they are, this is a very convoluted pasuk here. They are from Bnei Binyamin. What, what, what exactly is happening here? And these Beirotim fled to Gitaima and they lived there. So we have to figure this out. What's actually happening? So, first of all, if you start looking up Beirot, okay, so here in Yoshua, The cities of Binyamin. This is chapter 18, right? Givon, right? These are the cities. These are the cities of the tribe of B'nai Binyamin. It goes through, right? Yericho, Beitel, a lot of places. Binyamin, Pasik Chafei, Givon, Harama, Beirut. So we know that Beirut is, is a Binyamin city. However, if we go back to Yoshua, not chapter 18, but chapter 9, the story of the Givonim, Right, I'll, I'll go over that in a second. You see that the cities of the Gimonim, uh, right, they came to the cities on the third day, and there are cities. This is Peretet, Pasukid Zion, Givon, Hakfira, Beirot, Bekiryat Yarib. Oh. Are we saying that Beirut belonged to the Hebe? Or did Beirut belong to Benjamin? Now, just to recap the story of Givon, okay, so we, we all are in the same place. Back in the story of Yoshua, right, the people of the land of Israel were mostly anxious to do battle with Yoshua, but the people of Givon, of Givon which is actually my neighborhood, <laughs> My neighbor's right across the way. Give own. It's so funny. Um, give own is slightly north of Yishalai. We should look at the map, which is very helpful. Okay, you see here, 
This is Yushalayim. This is the biblical Givat Shaul. Not to be confused with the place where, you know, Madrash Rafael is today. It is north of Yushalayim, um, a little bit further east, right? This way. And Gibbon is out our way, right? A little further west. And in Gibbon, the people made a game. They made a show with Yoshua. They came to Yoshua with worn out clothes and worn out supplies. And they said, we came from very far. We're not actually indigenous Canaanim, Canaanites. We really want to make peace with you. And they put on this whole show. And the Jewish people bought it and made a deal with them. And when they could not go back on their word, when they found out that Give On wasn't actually uh, far away, that these people were actually Chibi, <clears throat> and they were stuck with them. So now the Dath Mikvah raises, the, that's the um, the Moser of Kuk Tanakh, raises a very interesting question on this and says, listen, it's not so clear that they wrote right, was inhabited solely by the Bnei Binyamin because it says in Yoshua that it was a city assigned to the Bnei Binyamin and yet we're also told that it's one of the cities of the Chibi um, in, in uh, the story of the Gibbonim. So let's just understand this, okay? We have two murderers, Rechav and Bana, our villains, that are coming from Beirut and the Pasuk says Right, that they were from Bnei Binyamin. Beirut is also Binyamin. Does that mean Beirut is not? It's not always Binyamin. That there are Givonim there. Okay, and it's a very interesting piece to add to our puzzle, which I'll explain further as we go further along. But the Givonim were were um, they made a deal with Yoshua. Yoshua found that they were cheating and afterwards he said you will be able to join uh our ranks we will you will be wood choppers and water drawers forever in other words you will be inferior uh, adjuncts to the jewish nation and it seems possible that the, the okay i'm giving you a little bit of a spoiler alert in chapter 21 in shul bet there's a tremendous conflict between Shaul's household and the Givonim. And we don't, we're never really clear on what that was, but they are very angry at Shaul. So the Dadmaker says perhaps part of the conflict is that the people of Beirut, the Chibi, were being pushed out by the Bnei Binyamin and taken, their homes were taken away from them. And that's why they were mad at Shaul. Possible. But it calls into question. Who really are Rechav and Bana? Are they Bnei Binyamin? Or are they Givonim? Which would make them not Jewish. And when we see how they behave, we can we can uh, we can talk about that a little further. Plus a Gimel. But the Beirotim fled to Gitaim. Now Gitaima, right, and they were living there until today. Gitaima, we showed you on the map. I'm sorry. The map, Gitayim is here. This is not to be confused with Gat. Gat is one of the Philistine cities, and Gitayim seems to be a Binyamin city. So the people from Beirut fled to Gitayim. We don't know why. The text doesn't tell us why did they fly, why and why did they flee? <laughs> they flew because they flee. That sounds like a, the what you call it, tongue twister. Anyway. The, the possibility is that because of the war, the Plishtim were taking over cities of the Bnei Binyamin, so the possibility is that they just fled to get away from the Philistines. But we're going to leave that till a little bit later. And we can come up with our theories. Pasik Dalit. Now, Pasik Dalit is so out of left field that we have to stop and say, what's going on here? And try to understand what, what we're being told here. And Yehonatan, David's beloved friend, who was killed on Haragaboa by the Philistines, he had a son who was crippled, both lame in both legs. 
He was only five years old when they heard the terrible news that Yehonatan and Shaul were killed in the Valley of Israel. His nurse picked him up, Batanos, and she fled. I have to understand, again, I, I told you there's a paradigm of the king dies, so let's wipe out the whole that king's family. So the nurses are frightened. This is the oldest son of the oldest son of the king. So he's in imminent danger. The king is dead, and all the, he's the crown prince, little Mephibosheth, right? So she grabs him to try to save him to run away, but Tanos, by and she was in such a, a hurry, Lanus, by Yipo. She dropped him, by and he became lame. It must have been a terrible fall. She drops him, and you know, they didn't really know how to help people who, with broken legs, and he became lame. Ushmo Mephibosheth, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this Pusik is completely set aside from the rest of the parrot. We we were told about Mephibosheth, and that's all we hear. We don't know anything about this. So this is a very big question. Why are we being told about Mephibosheth here? And I want to talk about him for a minute, okay, because there's very interesting stuff about him. In Divrei Yamim, okay, Ben Yehonatan Meriv Baal, okay, in uh, this is the name. He's also called Mephibosheth. Now, we spoke last time, I mean, two times ago, about the name Ishbosheth. It seems as if the original name is Ishbaal and Mephibaal. And here it says Mirivbaal. And the Baal was put in there as a, you know, a, you know, a name signifying like a, a Ishbaal, a, a, a great man, a master, and Mirivbaal, he is a, um, he's going to fight our battles for his back. In Shoftim, um, Gidon is called Yerubal. He is the master. And it seems that because of the widespread worship of the idol Baal, that the name Baal became a busha. And instead of saying Baal, they said Bosheth. So Ishbal is also Ishbosheth. And Mephibosheth is also Miriv Baal. The name Baal is added there. And he has sons. And what we see here in Divrei Yamim is unbelievable, okay? He has a son named Micha, and Micha has four sons, and his son has sons, and his sons have sons, and his sons have sons, and his sons have sons, and, sons have sons, and a bunch of took him down, and the sons of these sons were all Gibare Chayil. They were brave men of valor. They were great people, and they were Dorche Keshet. They were people who were um, uh, skilled archers. Marbin Banim Banim, they had sons and many, 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 many sons. Mayab Chabishim, Kal Elbim, I know 150 sons at that time. This is the time of Ezra, who were descendants of Mephibosheth uh, and his son Micha. It's so interesting. And in a certain sense, I think we have to ask ourselves why are we digressing here to talk about Mephibosheth? Why are we telling his story here? And the Mephibosheth basically comes to the conclusion that the only other heir to the house of Shaul besides Ishbosheth is this little boy. Now, if he was only five, and you know, this is the end of those seven years of David's rule in Hebron, that means he, he's maximum 12 years old and he's lame in both legs. He's not a serious contender for the throne. He's not a danger. He's all that's left of the family of Shaul, except for Ishbosheth, who's about to be murdered. So we can see this as a tragic footnote, which is telling us that the house of Shaul is decimated. They're done for. The only one left is Ishbosheth, who's going to be murdered, and Mephibosheth who's not really in the running for a king. And we could see that as a terrible tragedy 
and a lot of Mepharshim say, look, this is the end of the house of Shaul, and that's what this is telling us. On the other hand, we can look at this if we go to the Dibray Yavim and see this little boy has so many descendants who are great warriors, great people. You know, archers, if you go back to the the um, the lament that David gives for Shaul and Yonatan, David says, right, from the, the blood of the enemy, Keshet Yonatan, Yonatan's bow never missed. And Shaul never missed with his sword. They were great warriors and great archers. And this is going to be their legacy. And I'll tell you something else that's very, very interesting is that beyond the story of the, you know, the in the time of Ezra, that there were 150 great warrior descendants of Yehonatan. Then we get to, we're coming up, it's Adar, we're coming up to the story of Purim. And Mordechai is a descendant of Shaul, and Esther is a descendant of Shaul, and the story of the, the victory that Jewish people have in the skirts of, of Esther and Mordechai over Haman is the tikkun, it's the fixing of the story of Shaul's failure to kill Agag. If you recall, Agag is the king that Shaul doesn't kill, and Haman is Ha'agagi, he's a descendant of Agag. So in a certain sense, there's a tremendous hopefulness to this passage. It might be interpreted as, you know, the last remnant of the house of Shaul is just this little boy who's lame. And it's also telling you there's always hope for the future. Never, ever give up hope. There's always hope. And I think that that's the lesson we got to take away from that passage. Now we come to the the difficult, the really difficult part of this parak, um, and that is the murder. And the the problem is, I'll, I'll, I want to go through Sukkim Heibav and Zayin, and then you can see the problems for yourself, and then we'll try to answer them up. Okay, Pasuke. And the two sons of Rimon of Beirut, Rechab and Bana, these two bad guys, they come in the heat of the day to the house of Mishposheth, who lives, if you re recall that map, they, he lives in Machanayim. They come from Beirut, which is all the way southwest. They cross the Jordan, and they come to Machanayim from Beirut, and they come to Ishbosheth's house, and he is lying the rest of the afternoon. He's having his nappy. Now listen, it's very hot in this part of the world, okay? So you can understand that a person needs an afternoon nap with the hot sun, they had no air conditioning, and there was nothing to do but take his nap. On the other hand, if you look at the Tanakh, the Tanakh doesn't tell you things stop. It doesn't seem to be appropriate for kings to take naps in the afternoon. Um, no. You know, it's very interesting. There's a great book called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. One of the things it says in, in that, it's a great little book. It says, take naps. Naps are good for you. But a king has to be alert. A king has to know what's going on. It's a very sad thing that this king is going to, you know, be caught by surprise. And if you think about it, there were other incidents that came before, right? You know, Eglon, the king of Moab, like he goes off to his like upper chamber to rest, right? Because it's very hot, he gets killed. Sisra goes to sleep in Yael's tent, he gets killed. It's not a good idea as a leader to take a nap because bad things can happen. And it does seem like that. In, in contrast, David, right, he has his heart wake him up at midnight so he can praise God and sing Taylor. And the only time we find out that David slept in the afternoon, it was not a good thing. But we'll get to that later. So they come, he's having his nap, Pasuk The Hena, which by the way is a feminine word, the Hena, they, this is very bizarre and we'll try to make sense out of it. 
They came into the house, takers of wheat, which sounds like buyers of wheat, or I don't know exactly what that is. And we'll have to think about that. And by Yakuhu Elachomish, again, that fifth rib, that infamous place where everybody comes to get murdered in this book, <coughs> they struck him in the fifth rib and the Chomish. Berechav, <coughs> who seems to be the instigator, and Bana, his brother, fled. And Pasek Zayim. Vayavoa Bayit, they came to the house. They came to the house, and he was lying on his bed in the room of his uh, bedroom, right? By Yakuhu, they struck him. By Yimitu, they killed him. By Yasir, I throw show, they cut off his head, barbaric. By They took his head and they went by way of the Arabah all night. So they probably went um, down this way. Here's the Arabah, right? Um, they probably went on the east bank and crossed over here, uh, and they come to David and Hebron. But going back to our text, I think you could probably appreciate now what's weird about this text. What's weird is they come to his house and he's snapping, right? And they come into the house, wheat merchants, and they kill him and they run away. And they come into the house and he's laughing in his bedroom. And they strike him and they kill him, they cut off his head, and they go on the on the uh, Arava road all night. What? Why are we told that he's lying in his bed three times? Definitely, it's not meant as a compliment for each bullshit that he's taking his afternoon nap. Definitely, one of the things we have to learn is kings don't take afternoon naps. Bad idea. You know, and uh, really not, not smart. Watch your back. Watch your back, definitely. Uh, it, it seems that with the with the death of Abner, Ishbosheth should have been more careful, not less so. But okay, these are heads of the troops. So there's a number of things that the Mepharshim bring out. One is that if they were the heads of his troops, then they were people he was very familiar with, people he trusted. They were his own men. And if they were neighbor Yamin, listen, you know, we're all in this tribe together. So you know, that might be a, an issue here. The, the question is, why do we repeat this? Now, the Malbim goes into a whole series of questions. The Malbim says like this. Um, he asks all the right questions here. Number one, what are we doing with the story of Mephibosheth? And we talked about that. Either a, a sign of the end of the house of Shaul, or a uh, we can take this as a hopeful sign of the future that there is not really an end to the house of Shaul. And then it says, why don't we know why the Beirots fled? And then why do we have three times telling us that they came to his house and twice telling us how they killed him? What is going on here? Okay, so number one, number one, let's understand that just Alderich HaPshat and the Mitsuras brings the Pshat and says, the, we have here something that we call klaluprat. Klaluprat means we first tell you the general situation and then we tell you the specifics. So that means this is all one story, but Pasek Zion is going to give us the details. In other words, they come to his house, he's napping, they come into the house with as if they're wheat merchants, right? And they kill him. And they run away. And chapter, uh, Pasuk verse Zion, Pasuk Zion is telling us more, in a more detailed fashion, what happened. In other words, they actually, when they came in, they struck him, they killed him, they cut off his head, and then they went. In other words, we're getting the details. That's the Pshat. Now, um, yeah. <laughs> The Pshad is not so satisfying here. So we, we have to look further, I think. I, I don't like to go into a million explanations, but this is a very strange story. So let's see what we could do with it. So one of the things that um, the Radak says, it's very interesting, is that they actually went in, 
they struck him in the Homesh and they ran away. And then as they're running away, they said, well, how are we going to prove to David that we actually killed him? So they went back and he's lying there because they killed him and they struck him. They finished him off. And they cut up his head. And then they said, well, this is going to prove to David that we did this. In the minds of these wicked individuals, they are going to hand David his kingship with the head of Ishbosheth on a platter, so to speak, as we say, right? So they think David's going to be thrilled to see them and that this is going to be great news and they're going to get a promotion and they're not, right? They're going to be, uh, you know, David's generals. They think they're doing a great thing. It seems clear, right? So according to the Ritzah, they came back because they realized that in order to prove that they did the dirty deed, they had to take the head. Okay, the Abibernel has a similar tack, and he says they went back because they want to make sure he was actually dead. And then they had the idea of taking his head, I guess. And that would be one way. Now, very bizarre. It, it's all very bizarre. Now, <clears throat> so there is a commentator um, named Menachem. Rashi quotes him. And it seems like the Malbim is following that cob. The Malbim has asked this question. The Malbim says like this, and he he goes back to this whole sex uh, discussion of the Beirotim running away. And he says, it wasn't all the Beirotim, it was just these two. They ran away. Why did they run away? Because they had previously killed a merchant, right? Uh, a wheat merchant, and they fled. So now these guys are convicted murderers on the run in Beirut, and they had this plan. It's a very interesting Malbim, right? They said, if we kill Ishbosheth and tell David, we show David that we killed his enemy, then maybe the fact that we murdered someone else before will be forgiven for us. In other words, it's part of their plot. So this, this is uh, the Malbim. And it's a very interesting idea. And uh, Rashi, one of Rashi's sources is a man by the name of Menachem ben Saruk. He has a very, very similar idea. He says, interestingly enough, he says, they killed a member of Shaul's family and they ran away either before the death of Shaul or after the death of Shaul. They killed a different member of Shaul's family, of Shaul's family and then they ran away, and then they came back to kill Ishbosheth, hoping that um, that David will forgive them for their previous murder, and that they're going to be, you know, uh, now great members of David's court. And uh, <clears throat> the Malbim comments, right? All this shows us that Ishbosheth was sure that he was fine. Never occurred to him that anyone might hurt him. Right? If he had some guards in place, they wouldn't let him people, strange people, walk into his bedroom. Now the Aradak says, well, you know, they were his officers. He trusted them, people trusted them, they'd seen them around. It's very, very uh, not clear, but definitely the Malbim is concluding a man in Ishbosheth's position is being very foolish here not to have guards. And it's interesting because you have a similar story with, with uh, Gedalia, the story of Gedalia in, in, um, um, after the Hurban, when people tell him, you know, uh, Yishmael is going to kill you, and he's like, no, 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 he's fine, go to stay there. And the Chafetz Chaim says, you don't, you can't accept Lush and Hara, but you really should be careful. And that's definitely a lesson we have to learn. And I think that in today's world, it's very clear that complacency leads to tragedy with what happened in Israel. It's, it's just dangerous to not be on guard when you're surrounded by enemies and this very very sad thing 
Okay, now, so I'm giving you some suggestions about the strange wording of those They take the head of each potion. Think what, how ignominious this is. Shaul and his three older sons die as Giboim on the battlefield. Shaul's head is removed by the enemy. Shaul's defenders, the men of Yavesh Gilad, they go through the Arabah all night to save Shaul from humiliation. And these two wicked people, they kill an innocent man on his bed, they take his head, and they go all night. What a contrast, the death of Ishboshet to the death of his father and brothers. They come to David and they say, Here is the head of Ishboshet, who is the son of Shaul, your enemy. A Shebukesh and Shechu wanted to kill you. But Yitain Hashem, and God has given to our master, the king, revenge today from Shaul and his descendants. It's unbelievable. They're so proud, right? They're so proud. They say, look, God has saved you. God has given you a, a revenge against enemies. And um, they're certain that David will be so happy. There's an interesting Gemara in Kedushin that says, Kola posel, you've heard this before. Kola posel b'mumo posel. And here it says here, Megadif tamid, right? Who had spoke pasul, right? Ain't our koshel pasul daber b'shevach habriot right? People like Rechav and Bana are so twisted and perverse, they think everyone thinks like them. They think that David will be so happy that he, they killed off Ishbosheth for him. They're expect, and it's really funny because I don't understand. Aren't you guys up on the news? David was angry. You know, he, he, he lamented the death of Shoal and Yonatan. He lamented the death of Abner. Like, you know, you're, you're kind of not up with the news. Pasik da tet. Bayan David Rechavit Bana Achim. And David answers them. And, you know, he thinks, they think they're, they're doing great, you know? And he says, By the life of Hashem, who saved my soul from all troubles. This is classic David. I think that the, the, the ascent of David to the throne is so radically different than anything we've seen in monarchy up until this time that it's hard for them to process this. David is saying, God saves me. I don't need you guys. Right? Hashem takes care of me. Hashem always took care of me. When Shaul was alive and he had the opportunity to kill Shaul, he didn't. Twice. Because he says, if God wants me to be king, he'll make me king. I have to go around bopping off Bopping, you know, uh, bopping people's heads off in order to become king. I always have this like very strange thing in my head. I don't know, because I was an English teacher for so many years. It's like Macbeth. Macbeth. Lahavdil. Macbeth, you're going to be king? So let's kill everybody until we get to be king. That's a kind of horrible human idea. Like, oh, let's make this happen. But you have to make this happen. If Hashem wants it to happen, it will happen. God saves me, right? And it's a very important lesson for us to learn. We can trust Hashem. We don't need to make machinations to do things, special evil things. You know, God doesn't need our help to figure things out. And then he tells them, you guys, the guy who told me, look, Shaul is dead. But who are you of? And he thought he's telling me good news. But Ochazabo, I grabbed him, and I killed him, to tell me that kind of news. And it's very interesting. We, we looked at this Pasuk previously when we saw David's interaction with this Amalek kid. Um, back in chapter Aleph, we saw that 
the kid comes in, the kid doesn't just say, Shaul is dead. The kid says, I killed Shaul. And it's interesting that he, he doesn't say that to him. He said, just the fact that he told me this, I killed him. Of course, David gave the orders to kill him. He didn't personally kill him. But if the Malbim has a very interesting contrast here. The Malbim says, Hamagid is different than a Mibaser. Because Magid here says, a person told me that Shaul died. Now, Magid just tells you. And then the Malbim says, a Magid is just a person who gives you information, something they heard from someone or something they saw. But it's not information that's supposed to make a difference in your life. It's not Latoelet, let's say. But a Mevaser is a person who's giving you information that's going to be very important for you. So this boy in David's eyes is a Magid. He's telling me information. <clears throat> but he thinks he's telling me great news. Right? And it was not great news. The death of Shaul was a very big tragedy for David. And the Amaleki felt that he's, you know, giving him a treat. And it's interesting, the Malbim asks, right, um, here. The kid thought, I'm giving him great news. And this is proving to us that David didn't really believe the kid when he said he killed Shaul. And this is probably how it happened for this, because we talked about this a lot. Shaul is dying in Haragilboa. His armor bearer won't kill him. He kills himself, right? And then the kid comes along. Now, this kid is an Amaleki. He's an opportunist. These people were robbers. That's how they came to Tsiklag, to rob David's people. He's a grave robber. He's looking for stuff. And he finds Shaul's crown and Shaul's armband. And these are symbols of kingship. And it's kind of either they were hidden near Shaul. It's hard to imagine that Shaul went out to war, you know, uh, with all of his, you know, uh, kingly uh, jewels. But he finds these things. And then he tells David, I killed him. Because otherwise, how would I have them? But really, he had them because he's a scavenger and a grave robber. And he wanted to get the highest price. And he figured, if I give these things to David, I'm going to get the highest price. Because David is going to be the one who's the happiest to get these things. And David's like, you guys, I killed this kid for telling me the show was dead. Pasuk Right? He, you know, he, David feels that he killed this boy, right? Because he was making this into good news, right? He doesn't seem to believe that he actually killed Shaul. But now you guys, you wicked people on Hashem Rishayim, you killed an Ish Tzadik in his house, on his bed. And this is actually, what's the importance of the bed? It's actually a metaphor for the most weak. Like, this is a molek. This is, this is the evilness that attacks the weak. And this is what we saw, uh, on, unfortunately, on October 7th, we saw attacking the weak. People in their beds, people in their pajamas. This is, this is like the epitome of innocence. Now, the word sadiq that's used here, it's important to understand that the usage of the word tzaddik is not always the same. Like today we say tzaddik, we mean a righteous person. But it seems in the Tanakh that very often the word tzaddik is used not as righteous, but as innocent. Right? Rasha is the person who is guilty. And the tzaddik is the person who is innocent. That puts a light onto when Avram's arguing with God about stone, maybe the 50 tzaddikim, there were no tzaddikim in stone, but there were innocent people, perhaps. What's an innocent person? We have that question also. But you're evil people. You killed an innocent person in his house, on his bed. But now, hello, vacation, damomi etchem, ubiyart etchem in arts. I am going to take uh, revenge on his blood from you, and I will um, destroy the evil from the land. We have a concept, right, that in, in the Torah, it says uh, that the land is um, um, 
blood is mechanef. Word, uh, it's hard to translate the word chanupa, um, right? It, it means that it means in one instance like flattery, like to chanfin, right, in Yiddish. But it also means to um, contaminate. The land is contaminated when there's murderers around. Right? He calls the boys over and says, kill them. And not only that, and he had commanded that they should cut off their hands and their feet and they hang them I was always taught in English class that curtains are hung and people are hanged. They hang them on the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried the head of Ishbosheth in the, in the grave that they had made for Abner in Hebron. So David, first of all, David has them killed. It's important to understand that the king has a certain amount of discretion to put to death enemies, rebels, and evil people. And he doesn't necessarily have to do that according to due process. So that's the discretion of the king. Halachically, we do not dismember a body, not the head, not the hands, not the feet. So what's going on here with cutting off the hands and the feet? Because we are so careful with the holiness of a body, right? You see that we have the whole Zaka thing, where every tiny this little bit of human remains is treated with great respect. David is in this position. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this class, he is going to be blamed for everything. He's going to be blamed for the death of Shalyonatan. It's your fault that they, the Plishtim found it. And he's going to be blamed for the death of Abner. You made a deal with him, and then you reneged, and you had him murdered. And then Ishbosheth is killed. Of course, it's David's fault. David is in not, not just horrified by the whole event, but he has to protect his reputation and make it very clear. I didn't do this. I don't stand by this kind of stuff. There's no way in the world that anyone can do political assassinations and get approval from me. This is not how we're going to run our kingdom. This is all wrong. The hands that killed Ishbosheth, the feet that ran to tell me about it, they're going to be cut off. And it's a very, very strong message he's trying to give over to the people who might be saying, yeah, probably David did it, because why not? Why wouldn't he kill off his opposition? It makes sense. So now we have to prove it wasn't David, and David wants them all to know. And then he takes the head of this poor man, right? And that also has to be buried, and he puts them together with Avner. There's a number of things that come full circle here. The war between the house of David and the house of Shaul began at the pool in Givo, right? Al-Habrecha on. There were two sides, and they said, let's, let's uh, duel. And the war between the house of Shaul and the house of David is ending on the Brecha of Hebron. It's very symbolic. On the pool in Hebron, that's where these two guys are hanged, and that's going to be the end of this war, right? And <clears throat> this is a very uh, painful situation. And then you see that Ishbosheth and Avner, who are probably the greatest opponents of the kingship of David, they're buried together in the area of David, in Hebron, which is, uh, you know, I think that till today you can see the Kever of Avner near Marat And you'll see that as, as terrible and sad as this parak is, it's also a Kaddish Baruch Hu's way of bringing about the natural result, which is going to be that the real king is going to be David. And that we'll see in the next chapter how the people, you know, come to the realization that David is not just the only man standing. He's a very worthwhile candidate for king. And they're going to understand from what he's done in the, in the aftermath of all these bloody murders is they're going to realize that he didn't want that way. His idea of reunifying the kingship would be between him, marrying Michal. He's just not that person. And I think that all these things will come together, punishing the people 
who are telling him, you know, about the death of these people. It's all going to come clear. I'm going to see in the next parak how David actually becomes king at last. Okay. All righty. So we'll uh, you can unmute yourselves if you have questions. I hope I made this really strange parak a little more clear because very weird, weird parak. I do have a question. Um, so I understand why um, they, they hi. Wait, wait, one second. I just want to mention, I put it on the chat, but I don't know if everyone heard that we're going to dive in for little Miriam Khan about Sarah, a little baby with this uh, you know, tough news about her. I just want to get that out there. Okay, Zahaba, what's your question? Um, so, okay. thank you. Um, I understand it's like symbolic that they, they cut their hands, so you know, to show that you can't like put a hand on a king, um, whether he was the rightful king or not, he was a king. Um, but why did they cut their legs, their feet? It seems that the hands were the ones that did the murder and the feet were the ones that ran to tell. Oh, that's that was more of a mida kenegid mida, not less of a symbolic thing. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think that you're right. The David really wants to make it clear. This is not how we change power. This is not how we you know, this is not how Jews, you know, change kings. This is not how we deal with people. You never kill a king. It's just. Well, we saw it also in Yahushua, I think. something. They had some kind of thing then. Okay, that's actually very interesting you raised that. I was thinking of the same thing. In Shoftim, in Perak Aleph of Shoftim, there is a king by the name of Adoni Bezek. And the at the very beginning of this, like the first battle they fight, um, they kill Adoni Bezek and they cut off his, not his hands and his feet, but his thumbs and his big toes. And, and that's, and he says, Adoni Bezek, after they do this to him, he said, Shivim Malachim, there were 70 kings. I had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, gathering scraps under my table. What I did, God paid me back. That's a very bizarre story. First of all, Adoni Bez, you see what kind of a powerful king he was. He's just the king of a little town, but he had conquered 70 other kings and tortured them in this way. What's the vart? If you cut off a person's thumb, he can't hold any weapons, right? If you cut off his toes, he can't walk properly. He can't fight you. So he made them completely um, weak, and he had them, you know, um, scrabble for scraps without a thumbs ugh, under his table. He treated them terribly, but. He actually acknowledges that it was wrong. He says, what I did, God paid me back. So I believe it's the Malbim over there that says that, although we never, we do not disfigure, we do not maim people, even, you know, even a corpse. But in this case that Hashem put it into the heads of the, of the Jews, right? It's the Bnei Yehuda who did this and the Bnei Shimon, and they put it into their heads because that was the punishment that Adoni Besik deserved for his terrible action. And then it says, oddly enough, that he died in Yerushalayim, which sounds like, you know, the fact that he acknowledged his sin and he, you know, that he deserved what he got was kind of enough to give him like that kind of uh, enough atonement to, to die in Yerushalayim. That's the... Uh, that's how the first understand it, but it's a, it, it's true. It's another example of disfigurement that we does that. But you see that the cut off head started with David cutting off Goliath's head, and then they pushed him cutting off Shaul's head, right? And these guys cutting off Ishbosheth's head, so like, it becomes like a thing. So David is trying, you know, David is. To stop it. Yeah, no, it was to stop it. He doesn't want to have any kind of political assassination. 
But what happens? Okay, is- mommy, thanks a million. I have to go vote. I, y'all finished work at nine, so we're only going now. So is Tovos, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Lila Tova, Kulab. Okay, guys. Any other questions, thoughts, ideas? I'll close it out. It was such a short parrot, but like... Action past. Yeah. It's kind of like the end of an era. Like we're just moving past the whole show thing. And now we're going to go into, you know, David. And, you know, his his attitude, I, I don't know if I emphasize enough in the in the sheer, his attitude is that everything is from Hashem. His emuna and his, you know, his connection to Hashem is what makes him worthy of being the proper king. It's at every step. It's like, you know, well, what is what Hashem? What do you want me to do now? And, you know, this is not what Hashem wants. So I can't take the law into my own hands, so to speak. So that's that's of his greatness. And that's what makes him a great king. I mean, yeah. And the next paragraph is a good one because you're also, I think, I'm pretty sure we're also going to conquer the Shalayan. So that's in Perakei. Right. Upcoming. Also very weird stuff in there. Yeah. Thank great. you, Mom. Thank you. That's great. With David's kingship. Yay, Thank you. Thank you, Robert and Sharon. I just wanted to say I, I love the use of the map. It's so helpful. It just really brings it alive. I thank you so much for pointing out everything. If I don't <laughs> see it on a map, I can't picture it myself. Yeah. It's so important, the visuals, you know. It's really helpful. By the Arava, right? Just the same way that the people of Yavesh went the Arava the whole way and they went just to, you know, Bury Shaul, and then the um, the men of Avner ran away from Gibbon all that way. It's like interesting. The text keeps giving you like hints of how we're supposed to contrast this and contrast that. So it's it's very I find maps very helpful. I'm glad you I'm glad you like it too. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Have a good rest of week, and we feel good news. Amen. Thank you. Bye bye.